0: Welcome to Literary Hangover, I'm Matt Leck, with me is Alex Guns. Hello. And today, we are talking about The Pilgrim's Progress, or the full title, The Pilgrim's Progress from this World to That Which is to Come. It's a 1678 Christian allegory written by John Bunyan. It is regarded as one of the most significant works of religious theological fiction in English literature. It has been translated into more than 200 languages and has never been out of print, It has also been cited as the first novel written in English and um, actually Robinson Crusoe. Mm -hmm. Daniel Defoe mentions Pilgrim's Progress as a sort of inspiration for him in another one of his works. Um, So this was 60 years before that. Mm. I've been saying uh, on Majority Report in the plugs that it's sort of like, it's like the Lord of the Rings for 200 years. It was the most published work in English besides the Bible. Mm-hmm. it the journey the, the kind of hero arc the monsters he has to face the trials and tribulations it, it just seems like oh this is this is lord of the rings and it killed until like literally the 19th century was translated all over the world there's editions yeah. in all sorts of <coughs> different languages uh, what do you think about it
1: um yeah actually i this is the first book that we've read where it's actually something from my childhood where uh-huh. it w- wasn't this the this exact edition but there's a um there's a children's book version that's quite long, but it has these, like, gorgeous illustrations. It's not its not called Pilgrim's Progress. It's called, like, Dangerous Journey or something, which I don't, I don't know. Pilgrim's Progress is a great title. But for some reason, it's, like, tough stuff or what. Well, I can't remember. Yeah, i got to make it cool. Yeah, but my dad read it to me a lot as a kid, and I was obsessed with this story. Oh, wow. Like, the particularly the fight between Apollon and Christian. Uh-huh. The illustrations are beautiful in it, but you're just watching and being like, that would be insane it's as a kid.
0: D- it's different illustrations than this one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: it's, it's not, it's not okay. like that. I'll, I'll pull them up. But um, I don't know. It's something that it was, that I think I read it maybe once in high school also, but then reading it now for this podcast, it was amazing how many of the beats were, like the story beats were there. Like I knew what was going to come next, even though I hadn't seen it since I was, like, five or six. It's just, it's, it's, there's something about the story, I think, that it's just, like, a perfect little diamond. Like, there's, there's no, there's no flab, there's no air in it. It's just, like, a perfect story, and if you connect to it, it just kind of sticks with you, and it really stuck with me as, like, a young person, and, like, reading it as an adult, being like, oh, right, that's why I feel this way about certain things. You know, it's, like, going over. Yeah. I don't know, like, seeing, seeing. Uh, yourself being written basically
0: we're all So all the proper nouns were the same yeah like, yeah it was the, the exact same the story spawn. interesting
1: i think the language was just like a bit more updated and it was a little bit shorter like my dad could read it to me in a night if i remember correctly
0: oh, yeah. interesting yeah we'll play a little bit here actually before uh, i comment anymore and uh, i apologize about the heavy machinery uh, in my backyard if you can hear that on the recording <laughs> can't stop progress yeah they're, they're, they're trying to fill the slough of despond over there. Uh, <laughs> this is a...
1: Dangerous journey. That's what the child, the children's book version is called. Huh. Not as exciting. I guess,
0: yeah, like do they think pilgrims aren't as relatable anymore? Yeah, the kids like, aren't gonna, Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, and like when they're printing the book, the like, kids are going to know what pilgrims are. And progress, who cares?
0: Yeah. This is an interesting little series of recordings that somebody has uploaded to YouTube. It's IntelliQuest's World's 100 Greatest Books. It looks like a 1995 series. And somebody's uploaded these where I think what they were originally is like a hotline. And uh, you would type in a number and get a lecture. And I ca- I just love the idea of somebody sitting at their phone, like maybe um, uh, uh, coaches on TV or mm-hmm. something. And they're like, oh, I, I don't want this anymore. I want some actual culture in my life. And you dial up your rotary phone and listen to a lecture so here's some of this Um.
2: John Bunyan was born around November 30th 1628 at Elstow near the country town of Bedford England he was the eldest of three children of a tinker named Thomas Bunyan and his wife Margaret Bentley he described himself and his family as in his words of a low and inconsiderable generation my father's house being of that rank that is meanest and most despised of all the families in the land notwithstanding the meanness and inconsiderableness of...
0: That was probably something of an exaggeration. Uh, Bunyan's w- parents sent him to a different grammar school. Uh, so he, he, he wasn't, um, you know, the poorest of the poor, but it, it was true that his dad was a tinker, which is an interesting sort. Do you know what a tinker is?
1: Yeah, it's someone who goes around, and I don't know if it's just pots and pans, but they primarily, from what I know, they go around to like villages and towns and they fix pots and pans like through either welding or, or different like, uh, uh, means.
0: Yeah. I think I saw maybe windows and stuff like that too. Mm. Um, but y- yeah, which is fascinating to me. Like it's like a, not a door to door salesman, but a door to door fixer.
1: Yeah. And that's the only time that, that, that could possibly happen for you. Like if you broke your pot, you can't just be like, okay, we've got to go to the store and get another. Cause that's not possible. It's not like you have like, excess money (laughs) right exactly the other thing is like there's no one that could there's not an industry there to fix it for you You have to wait for the tinker to show up
0: that is not i mean that is yeah you just go to walmart now buy a new uh you know walk Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) but the reason that this is all coming from his biography which is mainly all we really know about his life right because he's one of those people that since he was from a more working class i mean there's, there's there's there is no working class at this time but We'll just say that for, right. to to make it easier. Sort um, of proletarian. Yeah, proletarian. Like, he, yeah. since he has more of a proletarian background than his more famous contemporary Milton, we don't know anything about him because no one else of stature wrote about him while he was alive. Right. So he has almost that kind of like, he's in that Shakespeare zone almost, where it's like we kind of have
2: to take his word and nothing else.
0: Yeah.
2: ...of all the families in the land. Notwithstanding the meanness and inconsiderableness of my parents, It pleased God to put it into their hearts to put me to school. Young Bunyan attended a local grammar school, but only for a short time, and thereafter he followed in his father's trade. The year 1644, when he was 16 years old, was a significant one. His mother died, and a month later his sister also died. His father promptly remarried. These upsets may have brought on the wildness of his youth, which he wrote of later. In November, Bunyan was called into the Parliamentarian Army of Cromwell and stationed at the garrison at Newport Pagnell. It's unlikely he saw any military action at Newport Pagnell, but he did have the opportunity to hear the new radical Puritan preachers. Two years later, his company was disbanded, and he- I
0: want to pause on that just to note how frequent it is that sort of war mobilization becomes a medium of uh, cultural exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, you hear that a lot in sort of like America becoming less racist because uh, the, the, its sons are going to war together, right? Yeah.
2: And, I mean, that's obviously a bit exaggerated. And he returned to his hometown of Elstow. When he was about 20, Bunyan married his first wife, whose name is unknown, but of whom Bunyan said her father was counted godly. The couple had four children, the eldest of whom a daughter was blind. Under the influence of his wife, he joined the nonconformists, During the 1650s, he underwent a prolonged spiritual crisis, which he later wrote about in one of the classics of Puritan spirituality, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which was published in 1666. Following his conversion, he joined the Bedford Baptist Church and moved to that town. It was then that he began, in his words, "...in private and with much weakness and infirmity to discover my gift." The congregation, too, recognized this gift. It was a gift for preaching... When the pastor of the church died, Bunyan replaced him. He drew great crowds and was in constant demand throughout all the midland counties.
0: I also just want to point out here that this is where already where I start to map this onto modern uh, day life and think of like preaching as basically podcasting, uh, <laughs> in a, you know, self-centered way. Yeah.
1: Well, you know when. St. Paul, the first Christian preacher, when he started going across all the places of the empire, he said, When I go to Greece, I preach like a Grecian. When I go to Rome, I preach like a Roman. So,
0: yeah. at
1: the 21st century, I guess preaching would be like a podcaster.
0: Patreon.com slash St. Paul. <laughs> yeah, because uh, yeah, we'll t- find out later, but Bunyan was arrested for uh, private uh, preaching.
2: This led to the beginning of his literary career, in which he would publish almost 60 works on divinity, many of them controversial. His first work came out of a dispute with the Quakers and was called Some Gospel Truths Opened. His books were marked by an uncompromising zeal, a practical direct style, and a particular concern for the spiritual welfare of common people. In 1658 Bunyan's wife died, and the following year he married his second wife, Elizabeth, with whom he fathered three more children. Following the restoration, Bunyan persisted in his unconventional preaching, in spite of an edict that all divine services should meet the criteria of the established Church of England. In 1660, he was arrested for holding an illegal religious meeting. The Bedford Church became a separatist or nonconformist congregation, meeting in secret. A few months later, he was sentenced to three months in the Bedford County Jail. But because he continually refused to promise to give up preaching, his term was ultimately prolonged to twelve years. Petitions by his wife failed to win his release. He was allowed a large degree of freedom in prison and even preached to the inmates. He supported his family by making shoelaces, but was also allowed to pursue his writing, which became the only way he could fill his idle hours. During these prison years, he published Holy City, his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding, and began work on Pilgrim's Progress. His first works were not very different from other Puritan divinity works of the time, and were often expository, or tended to explain rather than demonstrate. But they also displayed his aptitude for strong analogies, similes, and metaphors, which became so apparent in the allegory Pilgrim's Progress. These first works also reflected his distinct, forceful style and his scorn for hypocrisy, particularly in the rich and lordly. Bunyan was released from prison in 1672 and returned to preaching at the Bedford Church under new license from King Charles II,
0: that bit about the, uh, going after the lordly is what's really interesting to me about particularly the vanity fair section mm-hmm. uh, basically a trial uh, we'll get to later but it, there is no good uh, representatives of the, that aristocracy or power elite or you know judicial system
2: No. who had made a declaration of indulgence which allowed greater religious freedom he began to preach farther and wider covering three english counties His zeal and spiritual authority earned him the nickname Bishop Bunyan. In the mid-1670s, Bunyan began to seek the advice of his friends on whether he should publish The Pilgrim's Progress. In 1677, he was imprisoned again, this time for only six months. The following year, 1678, he finally released Pilgrim's Progress, and for the first time people began to recognize his literary genius. The full title page of the book read, The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which is to Come delivered under the similitude of a dream wherein is discovered the manner of his setting out, his dangerous journey, and safe arrival at the desired country. The Pilgrim's Progress was followed in 1680 by its sequel, The Life and Death of Mr. Badman, and by a very elaborate allegory entitled The Holy War.
0: The Life and Death of Mr. Badman sounds really interesting. If we do another Bunyan, it will probably be that one, or maybe part two of The Pilgrim's Progress, but it's basically the opposite of the Pilgrim's Progress. So oh, like a I guy I've never who, read it, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I haven't either, but basically it's a guy who is just damned. Um he's gonna he's going to hell and he there's nothing he, he gets all these chances to like go the right way and he always picks the wrong way.
1: Yeah, he's like I wrote this story about a guy I know who I do not like.
0: It's very funny the the title is great though. Mr Batman Yeah Mr Batman
2: death of Mr. Badman, and by a very elaborate allegory entitled The Holy War, which was published two years later. Bunyan released a part two of The Pilgrim's Progress in 1684. To many historians, these works back up Bunyan's own claim that he was the founder of the English novel. In 1685, he made a gift of all his property to his wife as protection for his family in case of further imprisonment, for now England had entered the period known as the Tory Revenge, in which there was renewed persecution of nonconformists. His fame as a preacher continued to increase until his death, by which time only ten editions of the Pilgrim's Progress had been sold. In 1688, while riding on horseback to London in a heavy rain, Bunyan contracted a fever. He died at the home of a London friend on August 31st at the age of 60. It's good to see certain things you can
1: rely on, that even something that happened 400 years ago, the tories are still bastards
0: yeah it's also interesting that he died um he died on the way to basically preach or or not even preach but help mediate uh, between a quarreling family Mm -hmm. which imagine if you were that family (laughs) and you ended up getting john bunyan killed because you were like bickering at each other yeah he's like yeah i'll ride out in the in the cold weather and dies because of it
1: Be like Jonathan Franzen coming over to end a podcasting dispute and died.
0: (laughs) We killed him. Uh, So now I want to go a little bit earlier in this uh, thing and where he talks about Pilgrim's Progress uh, specifically.
2: This session of the world's 100 greatest books features one of the earliest novels in our series. In fact, it may even be the first novel in English history. The book is The Pilgrim's Progress, written in the late 1600s by the author and preacher John Bunyan, an English religious reformer. It is the only novel in our series that's an allegory, a story, like a fable, in which a moral principle is presented by means of fictional characters and events. Allegories are more common in poems, epic poems, short stories, and spiritual works and scriptures, like the Bible. The Pilgrim's Progress is a spiritual work. The Pilgrim in the title is a spiritual seeker, and his progress is the path towards redemption or enlightenment. But it's also a novel. It has a continuing plot and continuing characters. Those characters have allegorical names like Christian, Faithful, The Worldly Wise Man, Hopeful, Giant Despair, and Evangelist. The places have names like The City of Destruction, Wall of Salvation, Hill of Difficulty, Enchanted Ground, and Celestial City. The plot itself, although an enchanting myth, is also the ultimate plot of the human destiny. Pilgrim's Progress is unlike any other work of its time. It's not the work one would expect of a Puritan preacher, of an uneducated man, of a man from the working class, of a man of 17th century England. Yet John Bunyan was all those things. In his greatest book, Bunyan somehow freed himself completely from dogma and from the restrictions of his class and background. For many years, scholars have wondered how this poorly educated son of a country tinker, a zealous preacher, and a formerly preachy writer could overcome such barriers of class, culture, and dogma. But the author himself supplied the answer, for he was as surprised as anyone by the book that finally developed. His original intention was to write a treatise, a formal and systematic account of the Christian life. But as he wrote, he experienced a rapid multiplication of ideas which came upon him, in his words, like sparks from the coals of fire do fly. These ideas forced him to put the treatise aside and to give free rein to his imagination. When he saw the result, this first allegorical novel, he wrote an apology to his readers for giving in to his inspiration, fearing they might fail to recognize the serious piece of theology hidden therein. Yet he also realized the strengths of an allegory or simile in conveying a message, and said, a similitude is warrantable for both Christ and the apostles did sometimes use them to the end that souls might be better informed. Still, his own misgivings about the book caused him to delay publishing it for several years. The final result, of course, is a work that enjoyed more popularity in seventeenth-century literature than any other except the King James Bible. And no other work from a writer of his social class in any period, no other Puritan or even committed Christian work has had such fame. Because he allowed himself to be lifted above the constraints of theology, he created a work that is also lifted, above the entire body of other seventeenth-century literature. Bunyan used nothing of the literary culture of his time. He hadn't studied the works of authors like John Donne that all serious writers of the period studied, and if he had, he would have found no predecessor and no contemporary to take his style from but this was a disadvantage that he turned to his advantage. He was free to discover his own genius. It was also the way he would have preferred, since he had considerably less respect for learning than he did for experience and illumination. He made no secret of his lack of education, and said, I have not borrowed my doctrine from libraries. I depend upon the sayings of no man. I found it in the scriptures of truth, among the true sayings of God. To understand his view, it's necessary to know a little about 17th
0: by that he means the Bible. Yeah. Mary Rowlinson uh is indicative of this sort of thing too. Uh and she also wasn't super wealthy if I if memory serves, I can't remember what actually her background was, but um the culture is the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh like there's not you no know, this other highfalutin learning, like uh, what do you think they're what do you think he's reacting sort of against there? Um, like what works like is, is it is shakespeare or like what's he it's tough it's tough to say
1: um i mean the separatist and puritan and nonconformist movements were definitely uh anti-theater and anti-shakespeare in this moment something to keep in mind also is that the the bible wasn't necessarily he's one of i would say maybe the second generation of english people where the bible was ubiquitous in people's hands mm-hmm. that there was a long process that went on from about 1500 to 1611 with the printing of the king james bible with the idea that that you know that that plowman would be able to quote verse at his own discretion like or that they would know the bible so well and i think something like pilgrim's progress is wasn't something that they were expecting and doing that, but that's a natural outgrowth where it's like, here's an average citizen of the British Commonwealth who happens to know this book so well that now mm. he can create his own art through it.
0: Yeah. I mean, and uh, he apologizes for the allegory form. Actually, I want to read the very, at the end, he has a poem. It's, he's a terrible poet. Um, well, maybe I don't want to judge him that harshly, but I don't, doesn't seem great.
1: Yeah, I don't, yeah. I mean, one one other thing also to mm-hmm. to keep in in context with this is that Paradise Lost is published uh, a, eleven years before Pilgrim's Progress, ah. and the big project with Paradise Lost was to fuse fuse Hellenistic culture with Christian culture. That like these two forms, like he literally, you know, he does it very. It's almost like a kind of postmodern, like self aware thing, you know, before any of that ever even was like a, a hint in someone's mind, but. The idea of, like, I'm going to take all these, like, Greek and Roman forms and give them Christian meaning, very self-aware, and I'm going to make it an epic, just like um, the Odyssey or or the, the Iliad. And so, to to read Milton is also to have like a, like some sort of dictionary (laughs) next to you or cultural dictionary Uh and Pilgrim's Progress is the absolute antithesis of that, which is he even like cites all of his work, like in the, in the book being like, this is from this part of the Bible.
0: And actually the, the recording we have includes in the narration, those Bible verses. Mm -hmm. So you can, which it was useful for me because I obviously wouldn't have had any of that context. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and it is very democratizing. I, I imagine, like, before Pilgrim's Progress comes out, you see theology as something that's, uh, very intimidating. Mm-hmm. And then here you have a sort of, like, very easy to understand conversational guide through how, what it actually looks like to be saved.
1: A very straightforward narrative. You always know where you are. You always know, like, like, our hero is going to run into, like, these people and they, they're, they, they represent, like, one attribute. And it's, it's like quite simple, but it's quite, it's also very enjoyable, like to read.
0: It's so simple that, uh, the straight and narrow comes from this book. Uh, oh, really? I didn't know that. I, I, actually, I haven't looked that up. I just assumed. Like maybe, maybe this comes from, maybe it actually comes from a Bible verse. Um, uh-huh. but this at least popularized it because the path, as we're told, which we'll find out when we start listening to it here, is straight and narrow. Yeah. Which is a, as a, um, sort of, fictional device you you know that that takes out so much ambiguity from the story yeah yeah. like you know exactly where they're diverting from it yeah um
1: it's like you know the archetype that's about to happen but it's it's watching it uh, unravel like, or wa- watching it like a machine a machine work it's like that it has it has its own pleasure when you're when you're reading a certain kind of literature
0: yeah so i want to read the conclusion actually to the first part uh because it is sort of an apology for the form a uh, conclusion now reader i have told my dream to you see if you can interpret it to me or to yourself or your neighbor but take heed of misinterpreting for that instead of doing good will but yourself abuse By misinterpreting, evil ensues. (laughs) Uh, This is also what I'm going to put at the end of every Literary Hangover podcast. (laughs) Um, Pay attention that you do not become extreme and plain with the outside of my dream, nor let my figure or similitude make you laugh or start a feud. Leave this for boys and fools, but as for thee, do you yourself the substance of my matter see? (laughs) Uh, Open the curtains, look within my veil... Turn up my metaphors and do not fail. If you seek them, such things you will find as will be helpful to an honest mind. What if my scum you find there be bold to throw it away, but yet preserve the gold? What if my gold be wrapped up in ore? None throws away the apple for the core. But if you cast it all away in vain, I know not, but it will make me dream again. Um, (laughs) Let's put a little bit more on this uh, biography section here.
2: ...century Puritanism. Puritanism was a social movement, and most of its literature focused on the actual experiences of men rather than religious theory. Puritans believed that salvation was won by playing a full part in the world, not by cloistering oneself in a monastery or meditating in a cave. So Puritans were, above all else, practical, concerned with the problems of daily living. The scholarly approach to life, or scholasticism as it's called, was rejected just as the life in a monastery was. This doesn't mean that Puritans considered inner, personal experiences to hold no value. Rather, internal experiences were given equal weight to responses in the external world. Everyday behavior, in social, professional, and domestic realms, reflected internal faith and knowing. Here is where faith was experienced, tested, experimented with, and validated. When he creatively represented these real experiences in the Pilgrim's Progress, it startled people. But this realism is another reason the book is considered to be so unique. It's an imaginative and very persuasive allegory, but at the same time it's authentic. Everything in it is visualized in terms of the contemporary life Bunyan knew. The journey itself proceeds along a muddy, poorly signposted 17th century road, over hills, through dark valleys and across bleak moors. The travelers must endure terrible weather and the risk of floods. They see the skeletons of criminals hanging from a roadside gallows, are wary of highwaymen, fearful of night, and grateful for the refuge of an inn. The various incidents on the journey are often mundane and common. A traveler gives wrong directions. A dog barks when someone knocks on a door. Boys munch on apples. This sense of realism is also carried into the conversations and dialogue. They are the ordinary conversations of men and women of the times. They talk about their spouses, family and background, and how they make a living. They exchange information about the road ahead and anecdotes about their travels. They even gossip about their neighbors, sometimes. Yet beneath all this casual chatter, the characters are busy assessing each other, trying to determine whether or not they'd make good traveling companions. Christian, the central character, is forever challenged to tell his friends from his foes. Penetrating all these mundane conversations and events is Bunyan's genius for observation. He has a sharp eye for the mannerisms, appearances, and behavior of ordinary people. He gives the character ignorance, briskness. He gives atheist a very great laughter. His characters begin to represent moral states, particular qualities and attributes. Often the characters behave in a way that results from this characteristic rather than like the characteristic itself. In other words, the character pliable is very guilty and embarrassed. Guilt doesn't mean the same thing as pliable, but a man who is pliable often feels guilty for what he is and what he does. Bunyan's characters all speak with the actual language spoken in the towns and on the roads of the English countryside in the 1600s. Being uneducated and having no model of rustic language from books, he simply duplicated what he heard. He made no pretense to sound literate. He used the same plain style that Puritan preachers used to address their rural congregations. This was a moral and practical choice. To the Puritans, fine speaking was associated with hypocrisy and with an elevated social status. It was used by preachers who had no sincere desire to reach the common people and who muddled the simplicity of the gospel with elaborate language and allusions to writers and works the people had no understanding for. It was the goal of the Puritans to serve the common man. Bunyan himself, as you'll see in a few minutes when we tell you of his life, was often in battle against the churches of England and of Rome. This wasn't because of some dispute over doctrine, but because of a pastoral concern because he sought to make spirituality accessible to the simple folk and relevant to their daily lives. So he took the plain direct style of his preaching and of the people themselves and gave it to his book. As a result, it has an authentic colloquial tone. It's full of idiomatic phrases and provincial expressions not found in other works of the period. The characters walk a good stitch. They set out to go a-fooling. And they have that kind of country common sense that makes them say things like... While we are out of danger, we are out, but when we are in, we are in. Bunyan knew that his use of this native language opened him to disdain and was not the fashion in literary circles, but he refused to change it. For over a century after his death, he was looked down on for this reason. Pilgrim's progress was considered unrefined, unsuitable for people of quality, lacking in sensitivity. Not until the Romantic Age was his style truly appreciated. Then writers like Samuel Taylor Coleridge and others saw in it a purity and truth that was to be admired. What makes the book so interesting is that along with this authentic dialogue, there is poetry, and along with the straightforward common events, there is mystery. This combination of fantasy and realism made it an especially original work and gained its author a unique place in literary history. John Bunyan created a realistic allegory with none of the contradictions that name might imply, and in doing so he wrote a book that is a bridge between two worlds. The medieval world with its love of allegory, myth and legend, and the modern world with its insistence on realism and authenticity,
0: yeah, I think that is as good a summary as i've uh, come across uh here i i li- I really like the idea that he's it's the the he, he's spurning the elites <laughs> to oh, yeah. try to reach normal people basically mm-hmm. um and I think uh there's a lot lot to be said for that um you
1: can already see uh like this. Um, which a, a number of people would like attribute to the spark of the Renaissance, but you see the beginnings of high and low culture now right and not just high and low culture, but artists actively identifying themselves as either one or the other and the audience that they're going to be speaking to. and I think John Bunyan has this really like uh brilliant like iconoclasm to him that feels wholly new for this time period that's like i'm i know who i'm speaking to and i'm going to be speaking to like these specific people
0: it's in an almost small d democrat sort of way Mm -hmm. uh which i i think is how uh if we want to rehabilitate uh i mean there's some things in here that we might question with regards to uh what maybe the sending of ignorance to hell means or how uh, <laughs> yeah, that's
1: that is usually the one where everyone's like what the
0: hell yeah like how what puritans think about the other um basically mm-hmm. but uh actually let's get to the actual story now so we'll start off there's a great recording of this online uh by the anico press a n e k o uh, press they have it on a uh, youtube And they also actually did the recording that's on Audible and has like a Kindle sync version of it. So, they're really on it here with the public domain uh, offering. But the the recording here is very good. uh, So, we're going to use this. And uh, we'll start off from the very beginning uh, where we meet Christian.
3: As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came upon a certain place with a den and lay down to sleep.
0: Uh. The, the den, if we want to take this as uh, allegorical uh, to Bunyan's own experience, the den is the prison that he was uh, interned in and this dream. He said he uh, wrote in prison to keep his mind from more morbid thoughts, uh, which is understandable and makes a lot of sense when, you know, they're later on, they get caged a couple times. Um, there you have the captivity narrative uh, showing up mm. uh, and uh, they uh, they. Christian and his uh, partners desire uh, death, actually. So um, I guess writing is better than that.
3: Hmm. I fell asleep and dreamed. In my dream I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face turned from his own house. In his hand he held a book, and he bore a great burden upon his back. Scripture for my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me." Psalm 38, verse 4. He opened the book, and as he read, he wept and trembled. Unable to contain his emotions any longer, he broke out with a mournful cry, What shall I do? Scripture, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear, and raise my voice unto thee because of the violence? and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou cause me to see iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance and destruction and violence before me, in addition to those that raise up strife and contention?" Habakkuk 1, verses 2 and 3. In the midst of this dilemma he returned home, but he restrained himself as he pondered his true feelings. At first even his wife and children were unaware of his distress, but he grew more and more troubled. Finally, his wife asked, What is the matter? He could no longer stay silent. He told his wife and children what he had learned from the book and how it troubled his mind. Dear, he said to his wife, and you, my children, I love you dearly. He looked from one to another. A burden lies heavily upon me. He took a deep breath and let it out slowly. You see, I have learned that our city will be burned with fire from heaven. I am afraid that we are all doomed. Even you, my sweet children, unless I can find some way of escape, but I haven't found any way.
0: The uh, fire from heaven, uh, th- and he's learning about that through this book, uh, wanting him to leave the city of destruction yep. uh, where he lives. Uh, I want to draw a parallel between that and the earth under climate change. Mm. Um, and really, so this book, basically a medium of communication. Uh, is what has alienated him from his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a, in cults, they say, um, when you're told to cut off your family, it's called defooing. Mm-hmm. Stefan Molyneux is in trouble for this. That's why people call him a cult leader. Yep. Uh, and we'll play this part here, and then I want you to explicate this part about, that seems to be encouraging people to defoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to that.
3: His wife and children didn't believe a word of what he said to be true and looked at him as if he lost his mind. They hoped a good night's sleep would settle his frenzied thoughts. With this hope in mind, his family hurried him off to bed, but his mind remained just as troubled in the night as it was during the day. He tossed and turned with tears and sighs until the sky brightened with the dawn. His family looked at him with concern. They could see he hadn't slept. It's worse and worse. He started to talk to them again about what he learned in the book. At first they tried to console him, but as he went on their faces hardened with anger. Finally they would had enough and answered him gruffly with harsh words. Sometimes they even ridiculed him, and other times they scolded him. Finally they just ignored him. It saddened him to see them like this. In fact, he pitied them. He'd often go to his bedroom to pray for them as a way to soothe his misery or he'd walk alone through fields while reading or praying. One day he walked in the fields while reading his book, and he became so distressed that he burst out crying, What shall I do to be saved? Scripture. What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16, verse 30b and 31. He looked this way and that as if he would run, but instead he stood still. He didn't know which way to go. As he stood there, a man named Evangelist walked up to him and asked, Why are you crying? He answered, Sir, I've read in this book I'm holding that I'm condemned to die, and after that comes judgment. Scripture. And as it is appointed unto men to die once, and after this the judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 27.
0: I just want to quickly point out here that if for anybody who has Amazon Prime, you can uh see Liam Neeson in his first role where he plays Evangelist and a few other characters including Jesus Christ on the cross. Is he good? Uh no. <laughs> I mean it's a, it's a pretty bad. Uh it's 1970 late 70s. Mm. Um yeah, it's it's funny though.
3: And I find that I am not willing to do the first scripture before I go to not return to the land of darkness and of the shadow of death land of darkness as darkness itself, and of the shadow of death, without any order, and where the light is as darkness. Job 10, verses 21 and 22. Nor able to do the second. Scripture. Can thine heart endure? Can thine hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with thee? I, the Lord, have spoken it, and will do it. Ezekiel 22, verse 14. Then evangelists said, Why aren't you willing to die, since this life is riddled with so many evils? The man answered, Because I fear that this burden upon my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet. Gehenna. Scripture. For Tophet is ordained of yesterday for the king of Babylon. It is also prepared. He has deepened and enlarged the pile of her fire and much wood. The breath of the Lord like a stream of brimstone kindles it. Isaiah 30, verse 33 And, sir, the man said, if I am not fit to go to prison, then I am not fit to go from judgment to execution. Distress wrinkled his brow. The thoughts of these things make me cry. Evangelist studied the man. If this is your condition, why are you standing here still? The man shrugged. Because I don't know where to go. Evangelist handed him a parchment scroll, and on it were the words, Flee from the wrath to come. Scripture. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who taught you to flee from the wrath to come? Matthew 3, verse 7. The man read it and looked carefully at Evangelist. Why must I flee too? Evangelist pointed his finger over a very wide field. Do you see the wicked gate over there in the distance? Scripture. Enter ye in at the narrow gate, for the way that leads to destruction is wide and spacious, and those who follow it are many, because narrow is the gate, and confined is the way which leads unto life, and there are few that find it. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. The man squinted. No? Evangelist asked, Do you see the shining light in the distance? Scripture. We have also the most sure word of the prophets unto which you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Second Peter 1 verses 19. I think I do. Evangelist said, keep that light in your eye and go up directly to it. If you do, you will see the gate. Upon arrival at the gate, when you knock, you will be told what you should do. In my dream, the man began to run. He hadn't run far from his own door when his wife and children noticed what he was doing and cried out to him, Come back, Come home. The man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, Life, life, eternal life. Scripture If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14 verse 26
0: Okay, so this is the part that I find very interesting. And I think there's it's be impossible not to per, like do this on film and have it not be a humorous scene. Mm-hmm. So his the uh, wife and kid are like, you know, come come home and he puts his f- hand literally his fingers in his ears and says, "Life, life, eternal life." Mm-hmm. And then you get this passage, "If anyone comes to me and din- does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, and even his own life also," He cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that mean?
1: Uh, okay, so we'll open up the theology corner, which is not, not a phrase we've used for a while. Yeah, it's but, been a while. But we'll make it a, a more formal. Um, so that's definitely one of those uh, lines from Jesus in uh, the Gospels that is sticks out for when people <laughs> people are like, like Jesus did not come here to judge. <laughs> there's like a few lines where it's like I'm here. I'm coming with the sword, by the way. There's a, there's always those crop up, and people are like, "Oh yeah, right." He's like quite intense about some things. And the best I can explicate this is uh, I'll I'll come from like you know my own readings and my own thoughts on on that particular verse. But the context of that verse is that he's talking. So uh, he's gathering followers in Galilee and. A man who's just buried his father comes and he goes, I I know who you are, Rabbi. Like, I know you're quite famous and I I really like what you preach. I'd like to come with you. And he's like, he goes, all right, like, come with me right now. And he's like, well, my father's just died and I have to bury him. And Jewish burial rites are a very long, protracted uh, process. And then Jesus says to him, like, well, you need to let, you can either come with me or stay and let the dead bury their dead, which is basically saying if you take part in this, you're already dead. He goes from there saying, if you don't hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, you're not with me, which is, so he's really going off. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He's what, he's what they would say is on one (laughs) right now. And I think the, I I mean, the idea is that this prophet who is in, in the gospel is God incarnate is asking uh, his followers for a revolution. But, a revolution unlike one that even like anyone would even know of, which is like a revolution of the heart. And it's, he often refers to saying you should have faith like a child. And that's kind of like a bizarre kind of paradox as well. like, well, what does that mean? Just like unbelieving, but try to think of what it's like being a, a child, which is you kind of accept the world on its own terms. And as you grow up to be an adult, you understand the world and you get maybe a little more cunning and like a little more, um, uh like you look at like try to wear how do you how you get advantages and you create what is you know what we would now call culture out of that like that's how large groups of people create things and so jesus is coming to say like the world that you've built is not correct basically mm-hmm. and you need to remove it and there's even beautiful things that are in that thing which which would be uh your relationships with other people like your filial relationships and he's either saying like you uh, what I'm asking for is for you to to raise your consciousness to a level where that no longer means anything to you, but also raises it like like your current understanding also in like in a way where everyone is your brother and sister. Mm-hmm. so it's kind of like hate the current condition to fulfill it in a way where it's like, and I think that there are obviously like like parallels with socialism or, or parallels with anyone in the struggle, the idea of like people who want to fulfill the concept of America oh. and uh, often are kind of have to hate it. <laughs> like right, hate yeah. the current in the current incarnation. And I think that that's like a very uh, Christian point of view. And I think it's definitely like a Martin Luther King point of view right. who also, you know, was like famous for going on a pilgrimage to <laughs> DC, but the idea of like, it, it's like a form of like saying you hate your brother and sister, like a form of criticism of the current, System that we're in.
0: Right, like you need to hate them before you can truly love them.
1: Kind of, or it's like, yeah, like you need to, because why are they like, why are they your brother and sister? Because it's a form of habit where they're saying like, you need to undo every single thought you've had to get to this like point of higher consciousness to understand life itself. And I think if I can just put one more finer point on it, that the the problem with it in this theological context is that once you make these choices about who is and who isn't your brother and your sister and your husband and your wife and all this thing is that you are saying no to other things. And that that's, that's what we would call justice now that like justice would be equality. And uh, the gospel story is asking you to, and this also pilgrim's progress is asking you to move beyond justice towards like mercy and grace that mercy comes through what would be God, the father into only can only go through conduits of people who are open to that grace like a child would be open to the earth or or someone who is received kind of revelation and that circuit needs to go through all of us to create the kingdom of heaven and anyone who's like living in a world where they're kind of saying yes and no to certain things or like this is how i see the world or like i'm taking the world how i want it it's closed off from that circuit and we kind of like A leftist reading of that would be like, I'm closed off to solidarity in a way. Uh, And I think the point of the Pilgrim's Progress isn't just to save himself, but it's also to help save the world by becoming a more elevated, like, conscious person.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that basically the second part of Pilgrim's Progress, which was written later... Uh, he's basically the example that his wife is following. Yeah. Uh, and he sets the example and, and his story is, even though he has all these failings in the journey that we'll see, he becomes an example to everybody else.
1: Yeah. There's one last, there's a there's a, I was actually, when I was thinking about, because you sent me that, being like, can you explain this passage? I remembered there was a quote from Melville that I quite like in Moby Dick when Pip goes overboard uh-huh. and he realizes the universe and, and in Melville's world, it's like, <laughs> Like, uh, those realizations are always deeply troubling and make you go crazy. <laughs> but it's not too dissimilar from from Pilgrim's Progress, where the quote is from Pip's point of view once he gets back on board and he goes So, man's insanity is heaven's sense. And wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic. And weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as is God. So, that's kind of like a, that's like Melville's version of the Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah.
0: Uh, we're going to be doing every single Herman Melville book, by the way. A <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, right. uh, quick uh, correction. Robinson Crusoe was 41 years uh, after this, uh, just in case anybody was going to get on me about that. Uh, let's return to the narration where we meet obstinate and pliable.
3: He didn't turn to look at his home or family behind him. Scripture. Escape, for thy soul do not look behind thee, neither stop thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain lest thou be consumed. Genesis 19, verse 17b. But fled toward the middle of the plain. His neighbors also came out to see him run. Scripture. All my friends watched to see if I would stumble. Per adventure he will deceive himself, they said, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. Jeremiah 20, verse 10b. The man continued to run even though some of his neighbors mocked him. Others threatened him, and some joined with his family and called for him to return. Among those neighbors calling for him to come home, two decided to grab him and forcibly drag him back. The name of the one was Obstinate, and the name of the other, Pliable.
0: All right, and we can take a brief break there. Um, so, yeah, so he means Obstinate and Pliable. Uh, he's unable to, true to their name, unable to convince uh, Obstinate to come with him, but Pliable does. Pliable's like, the Celestial City sounds amazing. Christian, we haven't found out his name is Christian, I don't think yet, but uh, Christian and Pliable walk, our main character Christian, uh, walk along the Plane of Ease, and then finally they come up to the, uh, and then uh, while Christian tells Pliable about the Celestial Palace, Pliable gets excited, and then they reach the Slough of Despond, uh, which is like a big uh, bog or swamp or mire that uh, is difficult to get through. And immediately Pliable is just like, fuck this, and heads back to the city of destruction uh, where he gets... Uh, first,
1: first task, he's already like, I'll oh, forget The this.
0: very first one. He's very pliable. Um, and he heads back and first he's made fun of people who are like, I could have lasted longer on your journey than you did. Uh, but then after a while, uh, they start to make fun of Christian, like what an idiot uh, mm. for doing that crazy thing. Um,
1: That's a popular theme that will come up with a lot of people that he runs into that people that it's not just that like um people don't believe him but it is mockery and that feels like very modern also (laughs) that it's like it's it's surprising that like that there wasn't more gas in the puritan tank because you could totally see like Puritanism being a very popular thing in the 21st century and people would say that evangelicalism is a form of puritanism Uh but the idea of like like yeah you need to do x y and z and if people make fun of you for it that means you're
0: doing the right thing. yeah (laughs) you can see it coming back actually yeah the haters I could
1: see myself just being like, I'm a Puritan now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah. Um, So, pliable dips. But then, a certain person decides to come and help uh, Christian out of the mire, and that person's name is Help. And then we, and and I want to get to the part where they're wondering why the slough can't be filled by the king, um, which I think is interesting, sort of look at maybe late feudalism. Mm Mm-hmm.
3: In my dream, I stepped toward the man who plucked Christian out of the slough and asked, Sir, why isn't this hazard fixed so poor travelers can cross it safely, since it is on the way from the city of destruction to the gate over there? This miry slough is a place that can't be repaired. It is a low-lying place where the scum and filth that comes with a conviction of sin drains and collects as the traveling sinner becomes aware of his lost condition. It is the fears, doubts, and discouraging apprehensions about oneself that arise in his soul. The king is not happy that this place remains so bad. Scripture, Comfort ye the tired hands, and strengthen the knees that tremble. Say to those that are of a fearful heart, Be comforted, fear not. Behold, your God comes with vengeance, with recompense. God Himself will come and save you. Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4. Based on the direction offered by His Majesty's surveyors, his workers have also tended to this patch of ground for more than two thousand years to see if it could possibly be fixed. Sadness filled Help's eyes. To my knowledge, at least twenty thousand cartloads have been swallowed up by this mire. Cartloads of millions of wholesome instructions have been delivered at all seasons from all around the king's dominions. It is said these instructions are made of the best materials in order to create good solid ground in this place if it could be fixed. But this is the slough of despond, and it will remain so even after they have done all they can.
0: I wonder if Nathaniel Hawthorne liked the sentiment expressed there about the futility of sort of state action to try to make something easier on people.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I also think that not only, it's like, it's not that the monarch needs this to exist, or, 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 or was, sorry, was, impl- was implying that this is the reason that they're not fixing it, but I think, from Bunyan's point of view, the fact that this obstacle is there is actually quite good, mm-hmm. and it's like it weeds out the the weak, and that's like a necessary element to get into heaven, basically. And I think that Hawthorne would definitely latch onto the idea that some sort of like adversity, given to you by a monarch or a ruler, is actually quite good for your spirit,
3: right? By the direction of the lawgiver, there are certain good and substantial steps placed through the very midst of this bog to offer a sure way. But this place spews out so much filth and changes with the weather, so that these steps are hardly seen. And often, when men find the steps, they grow dizzy from their own guilt, and their feet miss the steps, and they become covered and stained with mud. But the steps are there, and the ground is good once they get in at the gate.
0: All right, and now, uh... So he eventually gets to the slav Despond. Um... Um, and then he comes across worldly wise man in the town of carnal policy, and uh, worldly wise man. I think you can kind of figure out what he's about there. But it's interesting. Uh, one of the lectures I saw was a religious lecture, but talked about how we don't really have the concept of worldliness anymore. Like people are worldly. You you don't see preacher like. You think of the righteous gemstones, right? Like mm. the, uh, the, the, the younger, the youth pastor. Yeah. You're, you're, the whole point is to be worldly so you can engage with people. Like that fight seems like it's over, sort of.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I think that we don't really necessarily have that remove in like popular discourse that like you can't be too much of this earth. I think maybe, I mean, it's just maybe a product of secular, secularization that I think in the, the, the common, discourse is that this is the only existence
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's kind of bad i think it's certainly. yeah i mean
1: (laughs) it's i mean i think we can go into it more with this piece but reading pilgrim's progress in the wake of labor's failure i think is probably what i thought most about while reading it Mm. it both is an encouraging piece and what's not in the dialogue
3: currently yeah no I've given this thought, and I don't care what perils I meet along the way, as long as eventually I can be delivered from my burden. The older man asked, How did you come by your burden in the first place? Christian raised the book in his hand. By reading this book. Worldly wise man's lips thinned with disgust. I thought so. The same thing has happened to you as to other weak men who meddled with things too high for them.
0: You see this small de-democrat, uh... Uh,
3: They are suddenly distracted and confused, just like you. And it's humiliating. I can see the same thing has happened to you. And the problem is, they turn to desperate measures to obtain what they know very little about. Oh no, Christian replied, I know what I would obtain. I'd receive relief from my heavy burden. But why do you seek relief this way, by putting yourself in the path of so many dangers to get it? If you had enough patience to listen to me, I could tell you how to find what you are looking for without all the risks you run into along the way you are choosing to go. You see, the remedy I am suggesting is nearby, and instead of dangers, it offers safety, friendship, and contentment." Christian eagerly looked to worldly wise men. Please, sir, tell me the secret. Why, the answer lies just a short distance away, in the village named Morality. There, ask after a gentleman by the name of Legality, is a very judicious man and a man of a very good name. He has skill to help men off with such burdens as yours from their shoulders. In fact, according to what I know, he has helped many pilgrims a great deal in this way. Besides that, he has the skill to cure those who are somewhat overwrought and irrational about their burdens. You can go to him and be helped right away. His house isn't quite a mile from here, and if he isn't home himself, he has a son who is friendly. And easy to get along with, whose name is Civility.
0: So this is very, I think, contemporarily t- um, relevant. Uh, hey, is this
1: what piqued your interest? I, this seems like something in your wheelhouse.
0: I mean, this is part of it. You talk, you look about the, you look at the Trump era, hmm. um, and you, on the one hand, you have legality. So. Um, Trump is completely stalking the judiciary for years to come with people who are not competent, not even bar, like, um, uh, not Bill Barr, he's a fascist, <laughs> but the bar, the, the legal bar, mm-hmm. uh, that l- has questions about a lot of these appointees because they're right wing hacks, they're fascist, you know, operators in terms of filling the judiciary with the people. So, uh, y- and, w- <laughs> We still have this myth that these are like judges are impartial people, I guess, like seems to be alive in, uh, despite I think like criminal justice awareness. Um, it
1: seems to be waning compared to where it was maybe like five years ago.
0: Right. But I mean, it, it not. It couldn't come sooner. Yeah, that, yeah, I think
1: the crisis demands like a, a much quicker reaction than may be happening.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, because the right understands this, for instance, like when Scalia died. I mean, I remember we were in this apartment. We
1: were, we were here. We right. were uh, literally fist pumping the air. Yeah, so. because
0: it was good that Republicans didn't control the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah. Anyway, now that the judiciary is stacked against us and, gerrymand- uh, and Congress is gerrymandered to... Um, uh, favor rich people in the land uh f- legality like isn't going to do much for people like there's no laws being passed to address climate change there's no laws being addressed to uh, address uh inequality there's no laws about um medical debt uh there's we have school lunch debt in america mm-hmm. so fuck the law yeah uh the law is, law is shitty it's a failure in this country um and then you have civility. Don't go and harass a uh, trump admin official in a powerful position at a public restaurant if you see them. Yeah. That's uncivil.
1: Well, these ICE agents, they ha- they have families. I don't know if you know that. Because anyone who's committed an atrocity in history has never had a family. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if you know
0: that. We're meant to be better than this. And by better than this, I mean <laughs> yeah. we're meant to not confront the fascist uh, infrastructure being laid right before our eyes. Mm-hmm. Be civil about it, you know. Um, don't boo vote, uh, don't for instance, but also like, um, yeah, I mean, I think that point's made,
1: but I, yeah, I, I mean, to tie it back to Pilgrim's Progress is a, he shoots a hole right through that. And I think that might be, that's something that I'm, I'm going to constantly compare this to paradise lost because they're so close to each other and mm-hmm. they're such massive, important works in English literature
0: and, re- um, responding to similar, the same crises or, s- and, yeah, know, yeah yeah
1: they're they're both being forged by this moment where for a brief moment the uh, uh British Isles became a republic and then they're like yeah forget it yeah um but for for Bunyan to like get his sights right on like civility and in that you know in that period it would be like education and and being able to make verse and just basically like like a headshot saying like it's that's basically what's stopping christian on his way towards salvation you're going to hell so,
0: <laughs> like basically the second obstacle yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah like after you get over despondency and want to do something be have more agency about things mm-hmm. the first thing you, and what's interesting also is worldly wise men basically uh presents an argument and at this stage it's just another text for christian to compare with the one that, it, that he's already operating the bible right so i i have a problem this book the bible seems to be speaking to it but this other guy says oh you can all speaking to it in a kind of similar way you can get rid of it and also you don't have to lose your friendships and all these sorts of things yeah um and uh yeah, I guess the point is that uh, Ellen DeGeneres should read Pilgrim's Progress <laughs> instead of going to baseball games with uh, George W. Bush.
1: Well, I think to tie it also back, I think that's when you know when you zeroed in on uh, "Hate your mother, hate your father." Like I thought it was that's like a, quite the uh, um, emblematic verse for this book, also. Because it's like, it, like saying, hate your mother, hate your father. is literally like anti-civility politics.
0: Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that he's
1: pulling off being like, how do I say this to shock you out of like the bullshit that you're living in? Yeah. And to like say like, which is like forbidden, verboten, like for both 2000 years ago and today to say something like that. It's like to, to wake people out of this kind of like death that they're currently walking through.
0: Yeah. Let's hear a little bit more from Worldly Wise Man.
3: He can assist you in the same way as his father. You can be relieved of your burden there. A broad smile softened his features. If you decide not to go back to your former home, which I would recommend, you could send for your wife and children to come here to this village. Here we have suitable houses, just waiting for someone to move into them, and they are reasonably priced. The living standards here are good, though a little expensive, but high quality, We have everything you need for a happy life. Plus, along with an environment you can enjoy, you would be in the company of honest neighbors who are financially secure and live a good life. Christian was torn as to what to do, but decided if what worldly wisdom said was true, then his advice was the wisest to take. Sir, he said, how do I find my way to this honest man's house? Mr. Worldly Wiseman pointed toward a steep nearby hill. Do you see that high hill over there?" Christian nodded. Yes, clearly. The older man said, You must walk up that hill, and the first house you come to is his. So Christian turned from his current path to go visit Mr. Legality's house for help. But as he approached the hill it seemed to be steeper than he first thought. It rose so high that the side of it hung above him. It raised fear in him to venture further, for he was afraid the hill could fall on his head. He stood there trying to figure out what to do, and his burden seemed heavier than ever, much heavier than when he had set out from his home. Flashes of fire erupted from the side of the hill. Scripture: There were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the shofar exceeding loud, so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. And all Mount Sinai smoked, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended as the smoke of a furnace And the whole mount quaked greatly. Exodus 19 verses 16 and 18. The sight filled Christian with dread that he would be burnt. Sweat beaded across his brow as he trembled with fear. Scripture. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Hebrews 12 verse 21. He began to be sorry that he had taken worldly wise men's advice. And just then he spotted evangelist coming to meet him. While he was relieved to see the man, at the same time, the blush of embarrassment heated his face, for he had ignored the man's advice.
0: Yeah, so evangelist basically, uh, scolds him, tells him to get back on the straight and narrow path, uh, to the wicket gate, uh, uh, we get another dose of that, uh, hating your father and mother, uh, verse, um... And uh, Evangelist goes off against uh, legality and civility. Um, Then we get to the second stage. Evangelist leaves. um, uh, And Christian makes it to the wicket gate. He knocks on the gate as instructed. And Goodwill opens it up for him. They have a... uh, uh, discussion. they wonder why he wonders why Christian is alone. Christian's like my family didn't believe me. They have this, they have similar cover. He has similar Christian has similar conversations with a lot of people. And one of those is like, why are you alone? Why weren't you able to bring your family? Yeah. I mean, I I tried. Yeah.
1: I I tried. I have my, I have my fingers in my ears.
0: (laughs) And frankly, this is, uh, I don't know if he experienced guilt about this, but he went to prison and left kids and his wives behind. He had a his eldest daughter was blind. Died when he was in prison. Mm-hmm. This this whole period, the sixth uh, second half of this seventeenth uh, century, there's a lot about the freedom of conscience sort of debates. Um, mm-hmm. Sixteen sixty is when the Stuart monarchy is reestablished after Cromwell dies, uh, and it becomes illegal to preach unless you're Church of England. Mm-hmm. And Bunyan's like, "No, nah, I'm going to keep preaching. I'm good at this." And then he spends basically the next 12 years in prison, gets some parole uh, to go outside of it. But he could have gotten out and been back with his family mm-hmm. uh, who was, you know, having trouble because he had, like, like I said, he had to make bootstraps. Mm-hmm. Um, it cost money to be in prison uh, back then.
1: Um, oh, it does now, too.
0: Right, of course, definitely. It, yeah. It's it's it, it not even cost money. It's economically tr- like devastating to yeah. Yeah, the idea to is
1: to keep you in there. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the one thing that the seventeenth century may have on the twenty first century. A
0: hundred percent. Bunyan is able to develop his intellectual <laughs> yeah. in prison. He's able to yeah. read and write. Well, I mean, what, I
1: mean, I can't remember what I think. It's most private prisons now. They charge you to
0: read. Oh, they charge you if per they, page. Y- Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that doesn't surprise me. They nickel and dime you so much, like 30 bucks for a phone call or something Yeah, like and
1: that. you're making, I can't even I don't even know what the, the going rate is anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just atrocious. I would say definitely the prisons here, like maybe the the actual uh, shelter of it isn't as good. doesn't have like air conditioning. That's not even true. In Brooklyn here, we had a, a jail that didn't have blankets for...
1: Well, they turn off the heat all the time in the winter.
0: Yeah, I mean... The m- prisons have gotten worse.
1: Yep. Um, In this country specifically,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I couldn't generalize either. Um, In Sweden,
1: you get like an Xbox or something,
0: which is awesome. Yeah, you should, which, get, you, you get, should you should be able to tweet from prison. Um, uh, Bunyan's like basically Bunyan told the uh, magistrates that yeah I'll uh, I'll admit you're right if uh, it suits my conscience if you tell me how I'm wrong because <laughs> because <laughs> humility is a huge thing for these guys though. Like they're like, "Oh, I must be wrong." So it, how have I sinned the same same thing in the Crucible?
1: I was just going to make uh, that parallel. Yeah. yeah,
0: when she's like, "Oh, well, I don't know how clearly I must have sinned if God's going to punish." It was it Rebecca Nurse, I think?
1: Oh, I was going to say that this uh John Proctor's triumph in the end is is very much in the vein of Pilgrim's Progress mm-hmm. where he will not sign his name in the book to the detriment of his own family's material well-being. Yep. That like he's going to leave them fatherless which essentially in that time that the time that the play is taking place means it is leaving them destitute but he's like i'm here to to raise the consciousness of the world (laughs) basically and it requires sacrifice from me and from the people around me
0: yeah and uh i mean he really hated his family maybe
1: (laughs) yeah i mean yeah he may have i I mean
0: this is another parallel it was uh like leaving the wife it was the rip van winkle story as well
1: well yeah, so yeah, I mean that's the other thing is that a guy who got can't get away can't help can't wait to get away from his wife, it definitely falls into that pedigree of stories that we've covered so often.
0: Although it is it also said that his first wife is the one who got him into religion. Yeah. Yeah, he felt guilty for playing the game of cat on the village green when he was a young one and <laughs> thought his on the Sunday and thought his soul was gonna be lost it's because of the Double
1: Strike. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so uh, so Goodwill lets him into the Wicked Gate, uh, wonders why Christian's alone, uh, shows Christian the straight and narrow path. He goes to the Interpreter's House. The Interpreter's House is kind of interesting. He shows him a series of visions uh, among them, a very dusty parlor that uh, when you try to dust, it, sweep it with a broom, it just kicks the dust up. But if you come in and sprinkle water on it, it becomes easier to clean. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to be a metaphor for Jesus' preaching, basically. There's passion and patience, kids. So th- he shows them some images. Do you have anything to say about the interpreter? No. Let's move on. Third stage. Um, Christi- after Christian leaves the interpreter, he meets a wall called sal- uh, a wall called salvation. Uh, there's a cross on a hill that with uh, Jesus on it, and Christian's burden is released. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's he had a big burden since he started reading the book, and now that's gone. Three sh- three angels basically comes. Zooming ahead. We meet Formalist and Hypocrisy, and uh, let's just play some from that section.
3: He spotted two men tumbling over the wall on the left-hand side of the narrow way. They hurried to catch up to him. The name of the one was Formalist, and the name of the other, Hypocrisy. Like I said, they caught up to Christian, and he started a conversation with them. Gentlemen, Christian said, where did you come from, and where are you going? Formalist and hypocrisy explained that they were born in the land of vain glory and were going to Mount Zion to receive praise. Christian looked from one man to the other and asked, Why didn't you enter at the gate which is located at the beginning of this way? Don't you know that it is written that he who doesn't come in by the door but climbs up some other way, that person is a thief and a robber? Scripture Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that enters not by the door into the sheepfold but climbs up some other way, The same is a thief and a robber. John 10, verse 1. That may be true, they said. However, our countrymen have agreed that this gate you mentioned is too far away, so we usually just make a shortcut of it and climb over the wall at this point, just as we have done. Christian looked at the wall and back at his new traveling companions. Won't this custom of yours be looked at as a trespass against the Lord of the celestial city to which we are headed, and so be considered a violation of his revealed will? Formalist and hypocrisy said, You don't have to trouble yourself about that. Our manner of climbing over the wall is a well-established custom. In fact, many witnesses have testified that it is an accepted route which has been well-established. The real question is, will your established practice stand up to investigation in a court of law? Christian asked. We believe so, the two men assured Christian. Our tradition has been accepted for a long time, more than a thousand years. Without a doubt, it will be admitted as a legal ordinance by any impartial judge. And from a practical standpoint... What difference does it make how we get on this way as long as we get on to it? If we're in, we're in. And from what you've told us, you're in by way of the wicket gate, and we by tumbling over the wall. So what makes your present condition any better than ours? I walk by the rule of my master, Christian explained. You, however, walk by the uninformed working of your imagination. You are already considered thieves by the Lord of the Way. Therefore— I have little doubt that you will not be found to be legitimate travelers at the end of the way. You entered by your own devices without his direction, and you will leave by yourselves without his mercy. To this, they made almost no answer other than to tell Christian to mind his own business.
0: So that's one of those sections where it's just insanely, uh, modern. Yeah. Like yeah, those yeah. are, those, that, you can recognize that exchange happening. Yeah. Um, I mean, that exchange happens on Twitter all of the time. <laughs> uh, like, you don't know this because you didn't do, go here. It's like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're a fundamentalist, right? Um, Christian is. That's what this, uh, you know, you have to go through the wicked gate. Mm-hmm. How did you, what do you think the, what's your take on the wicked gate thing?
1: Like, what is it?
0: Like, you have to, yeah, you have to enter at the right point, uh, on your spiritual journey.
1: Yeah, I, I think, I, I'm from my reading is that the idea that you have to self you have to self actualize the idea that you are wicked and that's you know that can be uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here but that 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 can be a very problematic okay. thing that it, it, when depending on who it comes from obviously mm-hmm. but the idea that you like that you need um revelation or like that where you are right now, no matter who you are, need improvement. Not in like the, like in the spiritual sense that you need to be risen up, right out of um, the world. I guess like is what the wicked gate is to me.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Um, I there's only
1: th- one way to go through it, also.
0: Right, and if you look at later, we'll talk about. Uh, maybe we won't even play anything from him, but ignorance. Uh, Does not, did not go through the Wicked Gate also, uh, just shows up at the end of the journey because his homeland is close to uh, (laughs) the end of it. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. This is just from uh, Kevin Seidel, Pilgrim's Progress in the book. Very brief section, but says, Christian weeping in the opening vision of Pilgrim's Progress had suffered beneath the moral demands of the book, but that was only the start of his journey. Ignorance has never felt the condemnation of books and so cannot know their release formalist and hypocrisy and uh and christian they come to the hill of difficulty and there are other ways around it the road of danger and the road of destruction instead of going all the way up the hill formalist and hypocrisy take those and end up dead christian stays goes straight up the hill but he falls asleep and drops the scroll that he received uh when his burden was released that basically this is an assurance of being saved and uh and leaves it behind. He's going to have to go back and get it. But before he realizes that, he sees timorous and mistrust coming backwards down the path, and they're fleeing away from two lions. Uh, then Christian realizes scrolls missing. He goes back and gets it, uh, recovers it. Then he gets past the lions who are basically chained to the wall. We can go through that. Um, but basically, you just need to be brave and trust the path, the straight
1: um, and narrow. Also, you have to walk directly, directly between them to make it through. Right.
0: We find out that Christian was, his name was born, uh, when he was born, was graceless. Uh, he's talking to the porter after passing these lions at the house beautiful. V- some virgin daughters, their discretion, the daughter comes and asks him about his journey. And then uh, the other daughters, prudence, piety, and charity, invite him in. They have, uh, they feast, they talk about Jesus, um, talk about why they're going, where they're going, why didn't your family join again time to eat little
1: note on yeah, yeah. the where they live the how uh the house beautiful does that phrase ring a bell to you at all
0: no go on
1: for, it's a little throwback for one of our episodes from earlier in the year about oscar Wilde. the house beautiful was the name of his lectures that he would give on aesthetics in america when he toured america
0: oh wow yeah that's fascinating interesting i wonder what wild thought about it pilgrim's progress
1: well he, oh yeah and he also references references pilgrim's progress several times in um his letter from prison what is that one called
0: it's not from birmingham jail is it
1: no that's that's uh, that's, that's Martin Luther King. yeah such a, i mean honestly basically the same guy
0: yeah uh, oh yeah i can't name deeper it. fundus yeah deeper fundus yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i was thinking birmingham england but <laughs> <laughs> no totally um yeah uh okay Uh, So yeah, he's at the house, beautiful, sleeps in the peace room, talking about how much the Lord kicks ass, and he gets armored up at the end of this section. And uh, then we'll move to the fourth stage, and that armor immediately becomes useful because he's going down to the Valley of Humiliation, and there we meet Apollyon, uh, who Alex has already alluded to. Let's uh, get to that part.
3: It's offered plenty of amends for all his grief and when they let him go, he was clad with northern steel from top to toe. But it didn't take long for Christian to be hard-pressed in this valley of humiliation. He had only gone a little way before he spotted a foul fiend coming across the field to meet him. The fiend's name was Apollyon, which means destroyer. Fear filled Christian. His mind raced, trying to figure out what to do. Should he go back or stand his ground? As he considered his options. He thought about retreating, but he had no armor for his back. If he ran away and turned his back to the fiend, it might give his foe a greater advantage, making it easier to pierce him with his darts. So Christian determined to stand his ground and risk confrontation with the enemy. He was out of time, and it was the best thing to do. So he continued on, and Apollyon met him. The monster was hideous and clothed with scales like a fish. They were his pride. He also had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and out of his belly spewed fire and smoke, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. When he came up to Christian he eyed him with disdain and began to question him. Where did you come from, and where are you going? Christian swallowed his fear and said, I have come from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil, and I am going to the city of Zion. From destruction, you say? then that means you are one of my subjects, for all that country is mine. You see, I am its prince and god. Apollyon's eyes narrowed. So how is it then that you have run away from your king? If it wasn't for my plans for you to serve me more, I would strike you to the ground with one smashing blow, right now for such an act. Christian stood his ground. I was indeed born in your dominion, but your service was hard, and your wages, such as a man, cannot live on, for the wages of sin is death.
0: What really, uh, what really sold this book to me is how, in this exchange and in the Worldly Wise Man, uh, and then in a, a couple of later ones, it's so material. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, he talks about Worldly Wise Man, um, uh, and he says, like, we have a decent standard of life uh um it's a little bit high, but everything's really nice. Mm-hmm. They're talking about the wages weren't your wages weren't great they weren't enough to live on. It seems um like you don't have to fudge this uh to make it relevant to sort of economic so- sort of social justice movements
1: well and i I think those impulses come from like when you're talking about allegory, roughly the same place, whether it's like the Pilgrim's Progress, which is like you know the the Christian religious impulse even the Puritan religious impulse, like we've seen quite a few nasty examples of it. uh, And rightly so, but this is an example of the same type of critique of the material world. It's not good enough. Mm -hmm. And that it, it's the, like the base urge is reform or, or not even reform is, is like upheaval is revolution. And that's something that we don't necessarily like, you know, in, in 2019 necessarily know, where that comes from anymore but like the the it's an echo of an echo of the of the same urge for liberation that you know the left or socialists or or any revolution like revolutionarily inclined movement takes from that same language
0: yeah and you hear uh close like just pilgrimage right like a a settling of a country basically as a pilgrimage or at least understood by the colonists as Mm -hmm. that
3: scripture For the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6, verse 23 So when I reached adulthood, I did what thoughtful people do. I looked for a way that I might perhaps improve myself. Apollyon looked down on Christian with eyes hooded with pride. No prince worthy of his title releases his subjects easily, and I am no different. I am not ready to lose you as yet. But, since you have complained about your service and wages, let me encourage you to go back home. I personally promise that what our country can afford, I will give you. Christian shook his head. I can't do that. You see, I have already yielded myself to another, even to the king of princes. How can I in all fairness go back with you? One side of Apollyon's thin upper lip curled. You have done exactly as the proverb says, exchanged a bad for a worse. However, it is quite common for those who have professed themselves to be his servants to give him the slip after a little while and return to me. Do this, and I promise all will be well. Christian stood his ground. I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. How can I possibly go back on my word and not be hanged as a traitor? Think about it. You did the same to me, and yet I am willing to forget all about it. If you will turn again and go back to destruction," Apollyon responded. Christian raised his palm toward the fiend. No. What I promised to you happened when I was but an immature youth. Beside that, I regard the prince under whose banner I now stand, to be the one able to absolve me of your charges. He let his hand drop and looked Apollyon directly in the eye. And yes, he is also able to pardon the things I did in service to you. Besides that, O destroying Apollyon, to tell you the truth, I like his service, his wages, his servants, his government, his company and country better than yours. So stop trying to change my mind, and I have made up my mind to follow him. A wisp of smoke curled from Apollyon's nostrils. That's all well and good. But think of what it will be like when your spirits are low, and you have so much to do. He paused dramatically, and raised the bony-looking ridge above his right eye. You are aware that, for the most part, his servants come to a wretched end.
0: Yeah, and so Christian explains why that's not really a problem for Christians, generally. (laughs) Being martyred is usually like something that they welcome that's what we're going for buddy actually yeah when you're talking about like god is actually watching what you're doing Mm -hmm. dying for him hell yeah Yeah. Uh, it's actually a
1: big deal where i'm looking where i'm where i'm shooting for yeah it's like
0: like this sounding better and better to me
1: it's like the um i'm actually laughing meme but literally
0: uh who's who's saying i'm actually laughing christian
1: like, I'm not, like, I'm not pissed off. I'm actually laughing at this. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'm literally willing for you. Like, go ahead and kill me.
0: He <laughs> <laughs> says, like, yeah, God's followers die a lot. Um, and also, you've been unfaithful. And he recounts the different ways he's been unfaithful. They have a 12-hour fight uh, over half a day. And uh, then Apollyon eventually gives up. We go to the Valley of the Shadow of Death, which people might have heard of from the uh, Seculeo. What's that?
1: I mean, it's from Ezekiel. No, I know it. <laughs> but maybe it's been appropriated in some way after that.
0: In uh, in Gangster's Paradise. The oh, Walk I, Through the Valley of the Shadow of Death. That's the first time I heard that. I only
1: know um, the Weird Al Yankovic parody of that song <laughs> because I used to listen to those CDs like it was actual music <laughs> in, uh, in elementary school. Just loving it. That was... um. Amish paradise.
0: You're right. Yeah, yeah. You want to tell me what this
3: is all about? As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing (laughs) left.
0: So uh, Christian has a different, well actually Christian hears somebody saying that uh, I will fear no evil. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And that's what Christian hears as he's going through it. He hears somebody ahead of him saying that. And it turns out in uh, the next, actually before, right after he hears that, we have to do this really brief bit about, he sees a cave where there's two figures, Pope and pagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, I think of, this is like a, mm-hmm. almost like a political statement or something. Yeah. I
1: mean, it wouldn't be a literary hangover episode about English literature without getting into some anti-Catholic uh, yes. sentiment. <laughs>
0: But what's amazing about this sentiment is they, like, declare victory. Um, here it is.
3: Gone this way earlier. While I pondered the possible reasons for such remains, I spotted a little cave ahead of me where two giants, Pope and Pagan, lived in old times. It was by their power and tyranny that the men whose bones, blood, ashes, and other remains lay in this place were cruelly put to death. But Christian passed by this place without much danger. And it somewhat surprised me. But I have learned that Pagan has been dead many a day. As for the other, although he is still alive because of his old age and many shrewd conflicts from his younger days, he has grown so crazy and stiff in his joints that he can do little more than sit in his cave's mouth, grinning at pilgrims as they go by and biting his nails in frustration because he can no longer intercept them. So Christian went on his way, But he didn't know what to think of the old man sitting at the mouth of the cave, especially because Pope was unable to approach him, though he spoke to him, saying, You will never mend till more of you are burned. But Christian held his peace, and smiled as he went by and suffered no harm. Then he sang a song. O world of wonders, I can say no less, that I should be preserved in that distress I have met with here. O blessed be the hand that from it has delivered me, dangers and darkness, devils, hell, and sin did surround me while I, this veil, was in. Snares, pits, traps, and nets did lie about my path that worthless I might have been caught, entangled, and cast down. But since I live, let Jesus wear the crown.
0: I just found it surprising that he thought of uh, the Catholic Church as a vanquished enemy at that point. (laughs) This was yeah. this was published the same year as the Popish Plot, which we've referenced before. Where basically it seemed like they, there was concerns that the, the monarchy was going to revitalize Catholicism.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that is that is an interesting point. I think it's definitely a hopeful, even in like the context of only like England. That's still kind of like a a, a hopeful sentiment that. Catholicism snares are no longer in uh, power.
0: You can just walk by it like okay whatever you say crazy person. Yeah that's you. just
1: like a busy box but really still still's got a little more gas in the tank unfortunately yeah. for so, uh, John Bunyan
0: So he gets to the valley of the shadow of death, uh, catches up with Faithful overtakes Faithful um, and then they talk about uh, Faithful catches uh, Christian up with his own journey including his rendezvous with Wanton which, uh, I, th- very few, none of the church lectures touch on wanton. No. They skip over her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't, I didn't even see any of the academics bring it up either, so I want to talk about it here. It's, this is where it gets sexy,
3: folks. <laughs> I've undergone some things that would be worth recording. Faithful didn't hesitate to answer. I escaped the slough of despond, which I understand you fell into, and I reached the gate without suffering that danger. However, I met with a woman whose name was Wanton, who intended to do me harm. Christian said, It's a good thing you escaped her snare. Joseph was tested by her in Egypt, and he escaped her as you did, otherwise it would have cost him his life. Scripture. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and none of those of the house were there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got outside and it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled forth. Genesis 39, verses 11-13 to But what did she do to you? Unless you experienced talking with her yourself, you can't begin to imagine how flattering her words were, Faithful said. So she didn't promise you the things of moral excellence? Faithful shook his head. No, not at all. She promised things of a carnal and fleshly nature, promising all sorts of sensual pleasure. Phew! Christian let out a low whistle. Thank God you escaped her, because those despised by the Lord shall fall into her pit. Scripture. The mouth of strange women is a deep pit. He that is abhorred of the Lord shall fall therein. Proverbs 22, verse 14. True enough, Faithful agreed. But to tell the truth, I'm not sure I entirely escaped her or not. Why do you say that? Christian wanted to know. I trust you did not consent to her solicitation. Did you? No, I did not defile myself with her, for I remembered an old writing that I had read, which said, Her steps descend down to hell. Scripture Her feet go down to death, her steps uphold Sheol. Proverbs 5 verse 5
0: I just felt like this wonton segment really probably spoke to people, like especially men that would have read this. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's so colloquial. Like, Ooh man, I hope you weren't tempted. That like <laughs> must've been really tough not to, you know, stray with that chick. Yeah, exactly. It's very, uh, I thought it was very, very interesting for 1678. Yeah. Um, uh, zooming through here uh, after that, the, we hear about, uh, they meet Adam the first in the town of deceit. Uh, and he offers, offers faithful one of his daughters. It turns out that uh, it's not really Adam the first, I think, or maybe it was Adam the first, but either way, you're not supposed to trust him because he's a sinner. Yeah. And there's this weird part where this guy starts beating the shit out of him. And it, it's Moses. Yeah. And then Jesus comes and says, Hey, Moses, chill out. They, they didn't, they were just wrong about Adam the first. You can, <laughs> yeah, show some mercy, basically. Yeah. Um, because I guess Moses is the more the severe. Yeah, because the Old, see, Testament Old Testament, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, they meet a few more f- people. Uh, uh, shame tells uh, faithful that only a few of the mighty, rich, and wise hold your opinions, which is kind of interesting. They retell the Apollyon fight. Talkative enters. Talkative just likes to talk about how profitable. Just having conversations is but he basically doesn't like to do anything
1: so, uh, what, what we would now call someone who's just interested in ideas
0: yeah exactly Talking to, he's just interested in the, the ideas for ideas sake and actually putting them into any kind of action is something he's like the difference between hating sin versus speaking out against it is mm-hmm. one that is what eventually trips up talkative uh, it's just
1: he, important that we're having this conversation it's so amazing that we're having this conversation
0: yeah Talkative is the son of Saywell from Prating Row. So Bunyan really likes these little uh, puns type uh, names. I mean,
1: I mean, he was in jail, so it's just like right. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta find your way to be like, oh yeah, this
0: is good. Right. So yeah, Faithful confronts Talkative, and then Talkative's like, "You are a depressed person," which is <laughs> uh, I also thought very contemporary. Like, mm-hmm. you're just depressed. You're a you're just a you're just a hater basically. <laughs> Um, then we get to the sixth stage. Evangelist returns, gives a uh, faithful and uh, Christian a motivating speech, but then warns of them about Vanity Fair and basically hints that someone is going to die there. Um, Did
1: you? I, I was curious, I, I, but I didn't bother to look it up because I just forgot. But is this the is this the origin of the phrase Vanity
0: Fair? I assumed so, but that's another thing I've just assumed. Um, me
1: I mean, obviously the most the most famous iteration after this is. Thackeray's novel Vanity Fair, but I I I don't feel like it's like a biblical phrase. But I
0: I I think well, let's see here.
1: It would have been, I mean, in for pop culture it would have been Bunyan's mo- one of more lasting contributions now that there's a magazine, of course.
0: Uh, Vanity Fair this is from Vanity Fair's website originally meant a place or scene of ostentation or empty idle amusement and frivolity a reference to the decadent fair in John Bunyan's 1678 book The Pilgrim's Progress there you go Uh, oh by the 19th century however William Makepeace Thackeray made Vanity Fair his own borrowing the term to christen his widely read 1848 satirical novel which was serialized at the time in Britain's Punch magazine yeah okay yeah
3: that when Christian and faithful got out of the wilderness, they immediately saw a town before them, and the name of that town was Vanity. In that town is promoted a fair called Vanity Fair. It is held all year long and is called Vanity Fair because of the name of the town, for the town is brighter than vanity. Scripture: Surely the sons of Adam are vanity, and the sons of nobles are a lie. To be laid in the balance they are altogether lighter than vanity. Psalm 62, verse 9. And also because all that is sold there and all who come there are worthless. As the saying of the wise says, all this world promotes is vanity. Scripture. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet if afterwards he remembers the days of darkness, for they shall be many, he shall say that everything that shall have happened to him is vanity. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 8. This fair is not a newly erected business, but is actually an ancient enterprise. Let me tell you about its origins. Almost five thousand years ago there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city, just like Faithful and Christian are doing. So Beelzebub, Apollyon and Legion, with their associates, perceived by seeing the path made by the pilgrims on their way to the city, that the course lay through this town of vanity. They planned to set up a fair here. A fair at which all sorts of vanity could be sold, amid festivities open and ongoing, the whole year. Therefore at this fair they sell such merchandise as houses, land, trades, places, honors, promotions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, and pleasures of all sorts, including things such as harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, And much more. And along with all this, at this fair there is constant round-the-clock entertainment, like juggling, cheats, games, plays, clowns, mimics, tricksters, and rogues, and other amusements of every kind. Here visitors can also find free offers that include thefts, murders, adulteries, perjuries, and all of them are available in various shades of a blood-red color. As in other fairs of less importance, there are several lanes and streets with representative names, where certain categories of merchandise are marketed. In the same way, at this fair, you have the proper places, lanes, and streets, which bear names of countries and kingdoms. It is in these places that the goods of this fair are easily found. There is the Britain Row, the French Row, the Italian Row, the Spanish Row, the German Row, all of which offer a variety of vanities for sale. Uh,
0: sounds like Vanity Fair is a bit globalist. um but it's interesting how much uh like the market is seen as a as a stand-in for vanity Mm -hmm.
1: Um, such a small i mean it's incredible foresight it's such a such a small force at this moment
0: but i think like it's not a it's not it's almost like not even foresight i think it's like um like capitalism in like the people involved in maintaining religion and growing its growing its base, see what a disruptive element capitalism is from the beginning basically. Yeah.
3: But just like other fairs where one commodity dominates the market, here too the most sought after of all the fair is the merchandise of Rome or it is greatly promoted. Some, like our English nation and others, have taken a dislike for this huckstering. Now as I said, The way to the celestial city lies through this town with its lusty fair which is held year-round. Those who think they are going to avoid this city will still have to go out of the world. The Prince of Princes himself, when he was here, passed through this town on his way to his own country during a time when the fair was in full operation. I believe it was Beelzebub, the chief lord of this fair, who invited him to buy some of his vanities. Yes, he would have made him lord of this fair if only he would have shown him reverence and bowed to him as he went through the town. Scripture, beloved, think it not strange when you are tried by fire, which is done to prove you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. First Peter 4, verse 12. Plus, because he was such a person of honor, Beelzebub escorted him from street to street and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a brief moment of time, so that he might, if possible, Lure that blessed one to lower himself and to buy some of his vanities. But he paid no attention to the merchandise and therefore left the town without spending so much as one cent upon these vanities. Scripture. Again, the devil took him up into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and said unto him, All these things I will give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Matthew four verses eight and nine. So this fair is of ancient origins, and is a long-standing and very large fair. When the pilgrims arrived, they were clothed with garments different from any available at that fair."
1: I think it's a really interesting comparison for the book and the scriptural quotations to make, is they're referencing this moment where before Jesus begins his ministry, he goes out into the desert for forty days to meditate, and in that moment he meets the devil, And the devil offers him all these things to turn away from his mission to save mankind. And one of them, one of which is to offer him earth like earth itself, because in, in the gospel, the devil, uh, runs, uh, the material world. And so the devil says, I'll give you everything like that, that is on earth. And then for Bunyan to quote that, and then to say that that's like the market is, is that exact promise, (laughs) uh, but to each other is uh one of the more powerful and damning indictments of uh of twenty nineteen right now than right. I think I've ever heard
0: well and that that's the thing that makes evangelicals so much worse than uh pilgrims, I oh mean, yeah 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 is there, well, th- yes th- that the market is completely like infested that
1: yeah well, when we just saw it today with uh or I guess yesterday with the impeachment hearings, where I think. Not only was Trump's impeachment as bad as Christ, it was actually worse. (laughs) And for them, yeah, probably. (laughs)
3: It probably is worse for you. When the people saw them, they stared at them and talked about what manner of people they might be. Some said they were fools. Scripture. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak. But you are strong, you are honorable, but we are despised. First Corinthians four verses nine and ten. Others said they were lunatics, and some that they were strange and unusual. Secondly, the great crowd wondered at their clothing, and in the same way they were curious about their speech, for few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of those who have sworn allegiance to the Lord Almighty, but those who ran the fair were men of this world, so from one end of the fair to the other, the people seemed barbarians to each other. Scripture, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages unto our glory, which none of the princes of this age knew, for had they known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. First Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8. Thirdly, and this astonished the merchants, was how these pilgrims placed such little value on all the wares being sold. They didn't even care to browse. And if vendors called out to them to buy their wares, they put their fingers in their ears and cried, Turn away my eyes from beholding worthless vanity. Scripture.
0: That's me uh, looking at the new iPhone.
3: (laughs) Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity and cause me to live in thy way. Psalm 119 verse 39. And they looked upward, signifying that their trade and commerce was in heaven. Scripture. For our citizenship is in heaven, from where we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall transform our vile body, so that it may be fashioned like unto the body of His glory, according to the working by which He is also able to subdue all things unto Himself. Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21. One mocking merchant observed the strange behavior of faithful and Christian, And said to them, What will you buy? The pilgrims looked at him with serious expressions and said, We buy the truth, Scripture. Buy the truth and sell it not, also wisdom and instruction and understanding, Proverbs 23, verse 23. With this answer, the merchant and others took the opportunity to deride the men even more. Some mocked, some taunted, some spoke with reproach, and some called for others to strike them. It turned into a noticeable commotion and grew into a great disturbance, to the point that everywhere you looked, the fair was in disorder. As a result, word quickly reached the governor of the fair. He came down right away and appointed deputies from some of his most trusted friends. He put these in charge of investigating what happened and to examine the pilgrims about why they had nearly overturned the fair. So faithful and Christian were taken for further investigation. Those who...
0: Uh, yeah, and uh, I just want to read a bit from John Bunyan and the Restoration Crisis of 1667 to 1673. This is by Richard L. Greaves, a historian. Um, in Albion, a quarterly journal concerned with British studies, uh, 1996. That the Vanity Fair trial is an evocation of Bunyan's own legal difficulties in the early 1660s is apparently is apparent from a close comparison of the accusations against Christian and Faithful with the early ones against Bunyan himself. Just as Faithful was accused of heresy but promised to uh, to recant if he w- were persuaded he was an heir, so had Bunyan. Uh, the indictment against Christian and Faithful uh, charged them with making commotion and division just as Bunyan had been accused of promoting disturbances. Christian and Faithful were further indicted for having won a party of uh, to their own most dangerous opinions, much as Bunyan had been cited for seducing the people. All parties, of course, were reminded that their actions on behalf of the godly cause were illegal. So you see the um, distinction between sort of uh, religious morality and... And the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, that's, that's why you see the splits uh, dramatized so much by Bunyan here. Um, the indictment of Christian and faithful charged them with disturbing their trade, much as Foster had admonished Bunyan to cease preaching and follow his calling. This suggests the possibility that Bunyan had used Vanity Fair, uh, the Vanity Fair story, in part to wreak vengeance on his tormentors. Some have gone so far as to depict Christian's uh, whole journey as a revenge fantasy directed at Bunyan's own persecutors and captors. We recall those dark days in 1664 when Bunyan drew his map vividly depicting the descent of persecutors to eternal damnation. It would be wrong to overlook the element of revenge in the Vanity Fair account, where the judges appear and where the other aristocracy include old man carnal delight, luxurious desire of vainglory, and having greedy. Quote, all of the rest... of the nobility, were of similar character. Faithful reportedly wanted all of them banished, a sentence that hung over Bunyan's own head. Sins are all lords and great ones, the marginal comment reminds us. Faithful had not restricted his attack to the nobility, but had vilified Sir Having Greedy and most of the gentry, not surprisingly given the gentry's prominence in his own legal difficulties. In this respect, the Pilgrim's Progress may be more radical than the Holy War, where Bunyan made a point of including peers such as Lord's innocent understanding and will-be-will among the forces of the righteous, probably in recognition of the role some nobles were playing in the defense of Protestantism against the threat of Catholic succession. Three years after Ponder published the first part of the Pilgrim's Progress, the Anglican apologist Cave Underhill, who obviously recognized the allegory's radical implications, Cascaded Bunyan for believing he had the right to, quote, bind kings in chains and their nobles in links in iron. So, yeah, there's a trial sequence after this, um, after Faithful and Christian are held in prison, and Faithful stands up for, uh, you know, his faith, and he's killed horrifically, uh, like sort of the drawn and quartering type of thing, mm-hmm. and then immediately taken up to heaven among trumpet fanfare. Yeah. Um, what did you think about uh, Faithful? Seem- seemingly sort of like the the Christ like figure in this particular narrative, right? Yeah, like I so think good. So. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, faithful uh, gets put to death. Yeah, martyred. Uh, seventh on onto the seventh stage, we meet Mr. Byans uh, and his uh, the, the folks that go to him. He's another materialist type of person. He's like, I'm I'm going along with the Bible when it suits me. Mm-hmm. Uh Uh, never go against the wind and tides, he says. (laughs) Uh, And then him and his uh, friends have, like, a discussion where they're like, if a preacher decides to, like, start preaching something just because people want to hear it, uh, but that also makes him a better Christian because he's speaking from the Bible, isn't that a good thing? Mm -hmm. For instance, if you, like, let's say it would help you become more popular by, say, humoring the presidential campaigns of Andrew Yang or Tulsi Gabbard, Mm -hmm. you can grow your views. And it might make you even a better socialist by, I mean, it won't, um, (laughs) by humoring that BS. uh, And it lines your coffers. uh, Isn't it good for everybody? And Christian's like, nah.
1: It's like the uh, prosperity gospel, which became really popular in the 20th century. Yes, exactly. It's like, well, like, what if, like, we were to tell rich people that they're actually doing okay and then they happen to donate to our church like maybe that's actually you know it's actually quite a good thing if, it turns out that they end up running running it like everything else
0: if john bunyan could see prosperity gospel churches he would be like oh satan won clearly <laughs> like
1: yeah i think probably
0: christian destroys them they go across the plane of ease they see a silver mine that uh, hopeful is almost tempted to go check out but follows later and his friends, they do. Uh, they see the Lot's wife as a pillar of salt. They have a discussion of why, see why was, if, if she was punished so severely, like what could happen to us sort of conversation. They cross immediately after this to another path on the other side of a wall, which I don't quite, how can you still be making these mistakes? Stay on the fucking path, guys. I know. Um, but it's
1: like when, it's like when the Israelites are delivered from Egypt and then Moses goes away for like 20 or 40 days and they immediately start worshiping a golden calf. And it's like, you literally saw the water split guys. Come on, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly.
0: just, just relax. What do you need? Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that's a problem for them um, because ultimately they, they they find it difficult to regain the path and uh they're taken by a giant the giant despair uh and he beats the shit out of them uh his wife the giant's wife tries to get the giant to convince christian hopeful to commit suicide um ultimately they escape because you know god hooks it up um the giant has seizures uh they get this out a
1: particularly grotesque part reading it as a or having my dad read this to me as a kid being like I hate this.
0: Oh really interesting. <laughs> yeah
1: cuz like I mean well like the illustrations of the giant also he's like drooling as as well and, like having like seizures and I was just like like you know 6 or 7 being like oh this is terrible. The
0: seizures are caused by sunlight. Is yeah. that like like uh is sunlight there like sort of God's grace or something yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think for the metaphor it's it's the idea of like divine light or the light of truth I also think that Bunyan may have been conflating giants with trolls Oh, <laughs> so interesting because trolls okay, hate yeah, light
0: yeah. right right, yeah uh trolls that's another uh is there a troll in here
1: I don't think there's any trolls which is i, I mean it's a it's a real. Uh, he really missed like his audience for 400 years from now. Yeah. Would have you need been an alt-right troll.
0: Dunk. You need an alt-right troll in there. Um, oh yeah. And the way they get out of Doubting Castle where the giant despair lives is Christian remembers he has a promise key and that can get you out of anywhere, which is very handy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then there's
1: like a video game quality to it at that point. Yeah. I like video game logic. Was, like, you <laughs> need to get this one key.
0: It's like video game logic if the person controlling the video game character didn't know how to check their inventory. Yeah, yeah. Like, remember you have this key that works on any door. Just go right to it and said you've been sitting in here for weeks, like, dying. Yeah, Um, maybe not
1: the best game to play.
0: Reading reading game facts. Um, So, yeah, we'll move on. Eighth stage is pretty boring there. Uh, Go up the Delectable Mountains. Meet some uh, shepherds. uh, Knowledge, experience, and watchful uh, and sincere uh, they see. It, they show them the hill called Error, where people fall down, and there's Caution Mountain, uh, a bunch of blind men among tombs that escaped, uh, or half escaped without their eyes. Um, the giant Despair, and uh, and they show through a perspective glass uh, the celestial gate. Moving quickly on to uh, the ninth stage, we meet Ignorance, and Ignorance is like. They have the same thing. They have the same conversation that formalist imp- hypocrisy had with them, basically. Ignorance had a straight path right to the celestial gate. And, uh, Christian and uh, Christian's like, you need to go back through the wicked gate, buddy. And, and ignorance is like, I don't think so. Uh, and ultimately he's wrong. They talk about little faith. Why didn't little faith fight when he got mugged, basically? I mean, they're pretty close to the end here. Uh, they meet atheist. Atheist laughs at him. <laughs> it's funny that atheist is is so close to the celestial gate, um, yeah. but he's coming he's, he's coming the opposite, the wrong direction, and laughing like nep yeah, doesn't exist. And like they literally just saw it through a perspective glass. So atheist isn't much of a challenge to them.
1: Well, I think it's like Dorothy Day has a, a comments on because she she was a. Uh, communist christian without going too much into it but uh-huh. her idea so you know people were like how could you possibly align yourself with communism who, that, which is like an atheist movement and she's like well at least atheists and and me a catholic at least we like face god directly rather than like agnostics who just don't even care either way so i think it's i mean it's mm-hmm. almost like she pulled it from bunyan being like at least an atheist acknowledges the possibility by saying there is no there there is no heavenly city like, at least they're they're going out on a limb.
0: Right. Okay, yeah. And uh, so I'll just pick the rest of the uh, summary from book regs here. Uh, instead of looking at the map, this is hopeful and Christian, instead of looking at the map given to them by the shepherds, the group follows a bad man who leads them into a trap. They manage to get out and walk through the enchanted ground where they have been warned not to fall asleep. To entertain themselves, they discuss their religious visions. Christian and Hopeful have both had visions of Jesus Christ. While ignorance relies on his own heart as a reason why he should be allowed to enter heaven. Which is kind of like, he's, the, th- the difference between him and Formless and Hypocrisy is his heart is in sort of the right place. Yeah. He's just, he has ignorance, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking, actually, in, it, a, in a lot of ways.
0: It's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 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 Christian and Hopeful reach the River of Death, where the depth of the river changes to reflect the doubt or faith of a person who enters it. At first, Christian is overwhelmed by doubt and almost drowns in the river. Hopeful rescues him and helps him until they are confident enough that the river has become shallow enough to allow them to cross. They are received into the celestial city and carried off into the clouds. Ignorance also approaches the gates but is denied entry because he has no invitation or biblical revelation to make him worthy of heaven. So, damn, tough stuff on ignorance. And that needing a sort of uh, a slip or a personal invitation is interesting it's an interesting concept to me, like, we've already talked about how important the book is, but just written communication in general, mm-hmm. we're so used to, like, texts and tweets and stuff like that, and I think, actually, our new media environment is, w- is what, why I find this newly relevant, because we're all getting upset by things we're reading, mm-hmm. and it's changing our trajectories and relationships. Um, this is, once again, from Kevin Seidel's Pilgrim's Progress in the book. Um, in associating christian's changed understanding of the Bible with such a legal document uh, with such uh, was legal documents to pass roll certificate, Bunyan was drawing from his own experience in his relation of my imprisonment. Bunyan mentions the mitimus written by the first judge and given to the jailer in charge of keeping Bunyan until the time of trial. The statute book of laws that the judges on another occasion bring out to debate his case and the calendar that lists the prisoners to appear before the judge at the next diseases or assizes, along with the legal standing of each prisoner, a document that Bunyan thought had been tampered with by the clerk of the peace, who apparently blotted Bunyan's name from the list so that his case could not be heard and the accusation against him could not be clearly read. For Bunyan, the power of such documents was real indeed, and the intense physicality with which he describes his encounters with texts may have less to do with the superstitious veneration of books, so commonly ascribed to the pious and newly literate, and far more to do with Bunyan's long struggle against such documents. Arrested because his, pe- Arrested because his preachings broke the law of the land, threatened with banishment from England as a consequence. Bunyan rightly describes Christian's innocence before God in forensic, in forensic terms. Um, that's about all I have to say about this, uh, text, Alex, do you have anything else you want to get in here? Um,
1: yeah, I guess just like, just for me personally, or kind of a way of like time stamping this, like when we were reading and discussing it, is that, uh, you brought reading this or brought up reading this, like I can't like two weeks ago, maybe. I remember starting it right when the absolutely disastrous results of the UK election mm-hmm. uh, occurred, where one of the possible socialist lights was completely snuffed out. Um, and remember I was actually talking on uh, or texting with Grace about it, our longtime uh, uh, frequent guest, Grace. And, you know, she was quite despondent because that's her home country. And we were going back and forth about it, and there was something... She was she was talking about that and also talking about moving into a new place because uh, she just bought a house there for the first time, which makes, I think, the only homeowner on literary hangover. Yep. <laughs> but, um, you know, we found I found something quite renewing about that fact that, you know, in the in spite of a Tory government that ran on an election of destruction for the most part, I mean, like a complete Vanity Fair Apollon uh, <laughs> campaign yeah. that there was this sense of renewal in someone that's willing to lay down roots there. And it, while I was reading um, this, you know, and I, I remember like reading as a child, it was quite moving that, and you know, what, what, what may have spoke to you about it also that it has kind of this resonance and I don't know, like Pil- the pilgrim's progress, like is the struggle and it's not yeah. just, It's not just, it's somewhere in between communal and a personal struggle where the personal happened, like the personal is necessary for the community to raise consciousness. And it's like, I think it's like Walter Benjamin said that there's this like, that hope is only given to you so you can give it to someone else. Mm. Might be a paraphrase, but something along those lines. And I think that like, kind of what we were talking about earlier about like continuing the circuit. It's like, there might be a lot of people listening that, you know, quite disheartened (laughs) about what happening. It's a very disheartening thing. And a lot of people are going to be destroyed because of this. And it's Mm going to make things that we want to do much more difficult to make life somewhat more bearable. But the idea is like, I, you know, I have faith in you. Like, I think you can do it. I think we're all, I think we're all on this like pilgrim's progress and it's just kind of up to us at this point. And like, we need to like go on this journey. I think it's like quite a powerful and beautiful metaphor. And we're going to like constantly be up against like the Apollons of the world, the, the yeah. powers of the world that, that say like your wages are good enough and things like that. And, uh, I don't know. It was to, a book to end. it probably be the last book I read of the year and the last book I read of the decade. And I think it was something that I'm very happy, uh, that I read.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just read a little bit more from Pilgrim's Progress in the book. Uh, um, it does not invoke the book this is uh, talking about Pilgrim's Progress and it, it it the first drafts didn't even mention the Bible explicitly it was just called the book hmm. um, I think Worldly wise man does call it the Bible um, and later in in maybe our uh, rendition here but uh, in other words, it does not invoke the book simply to gratify readers with whatever preconceived notions of the Bible they may have carried with them into the scene. What Bunyan represents is not merely the Bible of a waning persecuted opposition group, whether Puritan, nonconformist, or dissenter, but a purposely, but a purposefully abstract book, all the more powerful for its lack of particularity, for the way it alludes to any book that opens, uh, that one opens for moral guidance. Um, and that's the thing is like, I, I don't have a huge amount of, of interest in sort of theological writings. I mean, I have more uh, now, mm-hmm. um, cause I, I like the more you understand, the more you get interested in it. But that is like, just almost like the costume. This is the spiritual truths in this are wearing, which is like not something that I think Bunyan would agree with. Yeah. Um, cause fundamentally he thinks, you know, the Puritans had the truth. Yeah. But, uh, I'm a bit more, uh, of a postmodernist than that. But I still think like the fundamental structures of, of a pilgrim being, you know, realizing that this is wrong Mm -hmm. and I need to go on a spiritual journey to, um, figure out what's right. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think it's timeless. And, uh, and I think, um, it's, this is a, a worthy book to be published. The second only to the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's one that like, should maybe, uh, make a comeback a little bit, but, um, John Bunyan, I think we've done him a decent turn this time. Yep um patreon.com slash literary hangover if you want to for instance fund some soundproofing if you heard any of the machinery in the background here (laughs) Um, yeah
1: if you can get us like some sort of like upstate uh mansion that would be ideal because the sound there is is very it's very Very quiet quiet. and very relaxing exactly we would would probably even record better up there if we just had like a little bit more chill yeah
0: literary hangover needs a, a compound upstate um our own uh
1: wait what's the uh What's the lo- salvation? What's the city called? Sing- Sh- Shangri-La. No, in at the end of Pilgrim's Progress. Oh,
0: Celestial City. Yeah, we
1: just need uh, we would need gonna, our own
0: Celestial City. We're gonna build the Celestial City, folks.
1: That would be yeah. Well, yeah, you can do it by
3: yeah. <laughs> subscribing.
0: Um, so yeah, exactly. I think we we sound a bit like Mister By-ins. Yeah. Uh, or we're, uh. Anyway, uh, thank you, Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we will see you in the new. New Year, I will say, uh, I'm going to try Endeavor at some point. My parents are going to be in town, so I'm no promises here on the timeliness of this, but I'm going to record the poem, The Sotweed Factor by Ebenezer Cook, because uh, Alex are going to, Alex and I are going to do that poem, and then the John Barth novel of the same name uh next year so there's uh, going
1: to be some insane shit next year yeah there's going to be some i'm very stoked for this these next couple episodes
0: yeah yeah what else are you uh excited for specifically i
1: mean that book in gen- I mean i had never even the i don't wanna get fact to it that, i've yeah. never even heard of it at, yeah yeah and matt like we were in a group grace and matt and i were in a group chat and Matt was like here check out this book and it was like Twice as long as Moby Dick. I've never heard about it, and it's about a guy in Maryland in 1690s trying to keep his virginity.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, based on it on the guy who was like maybe the best American satirist before Benjamin Franklin, yeah. Ebenezer Cook. But very little we know, very little about him. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Alex, thank you very much. Yeah. It
2: was
1: uh, a
0: good one. Put it another end to a good year in literary hangover, folks. We will see you next time.